Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Yeah, I said it to my students on Thursday because they were like, what the fuck is up with the Duke? And I was like, it's undercover boss, y'all. That's true. And were they like, oh. No, they kind of oh. like, <laughs> a couple of them sort of like smiled and nodded. And I think, I don't know that the show is still on. Oh, maybe it isn't. I never watched it. I didn't either. But I remember it being a number of years ago, like true. maybe a decade. And my students are not as old as I am. What? <laughs> Weird. They just keep getting younger and younger. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts. Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock and together we are Whamlet and this week we are talking about measure for measure uh, thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoy this show and come back for more every week we discuss a different play by our favorite guy William Chrysanthemum Shakespeare oh it's lovely and effeminate <laughs> at what we like to call the 101 level yeah, so that's introductory stuff, which is everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and some of its major themes and some other cool stuff, like, uh, you know, what we think. Yeah, absolutely. And we always begin with a rhetorical device of the week. So because we are word nerds, each week we will draw a random device from our handy-dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card, Daffodil. Just really florally oriented with your monikers I mean, this week, aren't you? <laughs> I built this shell like months ago, so yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Tell me when to stop here. Stop. Oh, 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 hang on. Let me see the card. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was just vamping until I could get the cards right side up in my hands. Okay, this week, the rhetorical device is antithesis. Boring. Oh, I, I like antithesis, but anyway, antithesis, A-N-T-I-T-H-E-S-I-S, -I -I antithesis. It is the arrangement of contrasting words or ideas nearby each other often though not always in parallel structure and often though not always things that are opposites but all right so the example is brutus from julius caesar not that i loved caesar less but that i loved rome more so we've got caesar and rome being held up against each other less and more being held up against each other a double antithesis that's a pretty good uh example yeah, it's pretty solid. It's pretty solid, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. And, you know, if there's one thing I learned in our program, it's that you can turn to literally any page of any play, plunk your finger down and find antithesis because it was Shakespeare's favorite rhetorical device. I think it's pretty much everybody's favorite rhetorical device. It's real easy to do. Not mine. I don't like it. Yes, but you use it, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, everybody does. We hold, we compare things. It's what we do as as humans. So there you have it. Antithesis. Holding up two opposing ideas, or sometimes opposing, nearby each other in the sentence. <laughs> All right. There's that. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Nerd. It's now time for your Burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Okay, so quick and dirty this week. Um, I want to talk about pre-contracts, what the fuck they are, and why is everybody banging all the time? Because um, it's important for this play. So, uh, William Henry Shakespeare got married in uh, November of 15... 
82. Yep, 1582. That's when he got married in November to that nice Anne Hathaway, who was six years older than him. Uh, and six months later, their first child was born. And their first child was, we believe, not premature. So that means that that nice Anne Hathaway was pregnant at the time of the marriage. They uh, did not, it. Yeah, and not like just like a little bit pregnant, but like pretty pregnant. Because that's how math works. And this is because probably they had a pre-contract. And so basically what that is, is um, an engagement, essentially, that was recognized by law as like a pseudo marriage, more or less. It's an important plot point in this play, but basically you have two people who want to get hitched and they can stand in front of a witness and be like, hey, I promise to marry you and I promise to marry you. And then that's a pre-contract. There it is right there. It's also uh, maybe a point of contention um, with Henry VIII and uh, his marriage to Anne Hathaway, not Anne Hathaway, Anne Boleyn. <laughs> Different Anne. Wrong got, Anne. A, got a lot of Anne's <laughs> in here. She may or may not have been pre-contracted to Thomas Wyatt, the poet, and they may or may not have totally banged before she got married to Henry VIII. Um, and that, I mean, we, you know, we just don't know. The historical record doesn't know. Um, but it's a possibility and is one of the reasons that Thomas Wyatt was arrested um, when Anne Boleyn was arrested on charges of adultery and treason for cheating on the king, possibly with Thomas Wyatt, possibly because they were pre-contracted. So that's what it is. It's like a pre-marriage kind of situation. Uh, it's a thing. It's not really a thing anymore in this country. Anyway, the end. <laughs> that's what I got to say. That was your Burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Well, you know, the uh, documentary the Tudors on Showtime <laughs> um, definitely agrees with your assessment about Anne Boleyn and Thomas Wyatt. That's for damn sure. Yep. I remember, I remember that. Yep. But I mean, everybody was fucking everybody in that show. So it's like, I mean, it's also hard to that. keep track yeah. of. It's a real thing. <laughs> They're just rutting all of them. Uh, okay. So we're going to jump into the summary portion of our stuff oh i just completely lost my train of thought right in the middle of that sentence that's yeah, fun anyway so we like to begin each summary with a five word unhelpful title mine is it's definitely your fault angelo nice uh i've got undercover boss in the renaissance mm, yes <laughs> that's true which is maybe less unhelpful than i would like it to be because that is a totally accurate uh summation of the play yeah yeah. Nice nod to the uh, the TV show, too. Very nicely done. All right. So let's talk about some dramatis personae, but only the really important ones. Yeah. So we've got the Duke of Vienna, who disguises himself as a friar. He has a name. It's like Vincentio or some shit. But everybody just always calls him the Duke because I think the name is said like once in the play. Oh, yeah. I missed that completely. Oh, yeah, because it's it's complete. It's a total throwaway. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. Then we've got Angelo, his really uptight second in command, who he leaves in command when he leaves. Mm -hmm. uh, then we have the provost, who provosts around provosting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how he do. Yep. <laughs> uh, we also have Isabella, a young nun, or she's a devotee she's not quite a nun yet she's about yeah. to take her vows yeah yeah she's a novice novice um, thank you that's the word i was groping for thank you yeah. <laughs> groping it's a terrible choice of words given the play anyway groping for trout in a peculiar river <clears throat> that's his way <clears throat> uh so we've got claudio who's isabella's brother and his girlfriend julietta who is super pregs we also have lucio aka the best character in the play also, well. he's he's a shady guy and also one of Claudio's friends. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Mariana, 
who is Angelo's former fiance, who he sort of left because he's a dick and also money and also he's a dick. Right. And then we have various other unsavory Viennese citizens like Abad and a pander and a hangman and some prisoners and stuff. Yeah. And like none of them are in this summary. So So they don't really matter too much. Yeah. But they're they're fun fun. characters. Yeah. (laughs) They're fun to encounter when you do read or see the whole play. (laughs) So, Jess, why is this play so goddamn popular? Well, it's maybe not so much, but it's having a moment. It's been having a moment for a moment because it's super fucking relevant. It's, I mean, I taught it to my Britlet students this week and I picked it for reasons because it's super fucking relevant. And also because I wanted to teach them something that they had never encountered before and like what high schooler is going to learn measure for measure. Yeah, no. Nah. <laughs> nah. But primarily, this play is so topical. It's mm-hmm. so topical. It might be the most topical of Shakespeare's plays. It might be. Yeah. So yeah. that's why it should be popular. Also, it's really funny. It's really funny. And it's weird. And it's good. I, don't, I love this play. This play's in my top ten. Yeah. It's, um, it's really unsettling. I have made no secrets about my struggle to enjoy this play. But I think that's what makes it good is that you need to grapple with it and you need to struggle to find. I I don't know. You don't need to find anything likable about the play, really. You will find things, I think, Lucio being one of them. And I'm not just saying that because I played Lucio one time, but I am a little biased. Um, And if you're questioning how topical this play is, all you really need to do is um, look at your Facebook timeline. And if yours was anything like mine about 10 days ago, it had nothing but memes of gross Brett Kavanaugh's like scrunched up crybaby face with Angelo's lines from Measure for Measure, who will believe thee, Isabel, etc, etc. And uh, I mean, if there ever were a time for this play to have a real big moment, it's right the fuck now. So if it's not terribly popular, it should be. It's summary time. We will now summarize Measure for Measure for you in a segment that this week we're calling Groping for summaries in a peculiar summary. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a joke based on a line that we're not going to say in the summary because we don't say lines in the summary, but it's groping for trout in a peculiar river. And that means sex. Yeah, the sex act. The sex act. How? But (laughs) like which which sex act? (laughs) Mm hmm. (laughs) and like what's the trout and what's the river and what's the groping what makes it peculiar right okay i mean i'm pretty sure the river is your vagina i thought see but like vaginas are also like pejoratively referred to as like fish and trout and stuff sure so like is that but the vagina cannot be both the the trout and the river can't it and maybe the it's a maybe it's a sapphic sex act. Well, all right, maybe. Anyway, any <laughs> let's let's anyway. do the thing. Yeah, let's do the thing. Okay, let's uh, grope for that summary. God, all right. So the Duke takes a vacation from Vienna and he leaves Angelo in charge. Uh, so Angelo gets all up on his high horse and enforces some lapsed laws governing chastity and shuts down all the brothels, which is a problem for all the whores. Um, Claudio gets arrested for knocking up his fiance Julietta, and like that's a thing. Uh, Lucio goes to Claudio's sister Isabella for help, and Isabella delays taking her nun's orders to help. Yeah, there's a subplot involving a brothel and the guys who go there, but we're not going to talk about it too much now. Aeschylus, who's a judgy type of guy who judges, solves their case leniently, as opposed to Angelo, who definitely would not. Isabella goes to Angelo to plead for Claudio's life. Angelo falls in love with Isabella. Surprise! The Duke disguises himself as a friar and visits Julietta in prison, where he counsels her about sin. Isabella has a second audience with Angelo. Angelo, at that time, offers to spare Claudio's life if Isabella agrees to sleep with Angelo. And maybe he tries to force himself on her. She definitely resists him and says she'll tell everyone what he's done. And he says, it's her word against his and no one will believe her. Hmm, sounds familiar. 
So the disguised Duke goes to visit Claudio in prison. He counsels Claudio to resign himself to death. Isabella comes to visit. The Duke hides himself and overhears their conversation. Claudio is super angry that Isabella won't fuck Angelo to save his life. The Duke interrupts them and counsels Claudio to prepare himself for death again. Uh, The Duke tells Isabella about Mariana, who was supposed to marry Angelo, but Angelo set her aside after her brother died at sea and lost her dowry. The Duke encourages Isabella to, to agree to sleep with Angelo so they can smuggle in Mariana instead and set everything right with a bed trick. Yay, bed tricks! Uh, Yay! The Duke Duke runs into Lucio, who speaks ill of the Duke's proclivities towards lechery. Uh, The Duke rejects these ideas and defends the Duke to Lucio, because disguise. Uh, And then the Duke overhears other prisoners saying that Lucio has fathered some bastards. In Act 4, Mariana agrees to go along with the Duke's bed trickery. She's also supposed to convince Angelo to spare Claudio while he's in, like, a post-coital stupor. The Duke goes back to the prison to await the reprieve for Claudio that he thinks is going to come, and instead receives Angelo's order to execute him immediately, because Angelo's a dick. The Duke convinces the provost to kill another prisoner instead and send that guy's head to Angelo, pretending that it's Claudio's. The prisoner they choose for this is a little too belligerent and too drunk for them to kill so they cut the head off of a differently different freshly dead guy who looks more like claudio anyway and the duke then tells isabella that her brother is dead and then consoles her gross lucio accidentally admits to the duke that he did father a bastard with a prostitute and the duke makes elaborate plans for his return to vienna and isabella and mariana plan to publicly accuse angelo So the Duke comes back to Vienna. Isabella interrupts his procession through the city and tells him her story about Angelo. The Duke pretends not to believe her because reasons. Mariana steps in to corroborate and Angelo denies all the charges. Uh, Mm -hmm. So then in a move that confuses everyone, the Duke leaves in the middle of all of this so he can reappear as the friar and confirm the women's story. Lucio takes off the friar's hood in a tussle, revealing that ta-da was the Duke the entire time. The Duke sends Angelo and Mariana off to be married immediately and then calls for his execution. Both Mariana and Isabella plead for mercy, which the Duke grants eventually and then brings in and pardons Claudio, who is not dead. Then he asks Isabella, the nun, to marry him. He takes a brief break from waiting for an answer to also punish Lucio and then asks her again. She says nothing. The end. Done. End of play. Ah, this play. This play is bonkers. So... Tips and tidbits time. Tell us some things, Jess. Okie doke. So I am going to talk to you this week about um, how the Duke in this play might be based on King James I of England. Um, All of this information comes from the Folger edition of Measure for Measure. So thanks for that, Barbara Mallet and Paul Wurstein. Y'all are great. Um, So for like... The last 250-ish years, people have been trying to connect the Duke to King James, starting with uh, the thing that we know, which is that Measure for Measure was performed for James's court at Whitehall on December 26, 1604. So he'd been king for about a year at this point, year and a half. And we know we know that Shakespeare's company took the play and took it to Whitehall and performed it. So that's interesting. Uh, some people want to be like, Measure for Measure was written expressly for King James, but there's nothing actually to corroborate that we don't know that we cannot prove that there's nothing to back that up um so all we know is that it was taken to whitehall and was performed there so starting with that uh people like to think that the duke and measure her measure was created by shakespeare as a flattering representation uh of king james or perhaps um as a vehicle for shakespeare to instruct the new king in rulership so this is based on a couple of things. And the first one is that there, there are a couple of lines in Act 1, Scene 1, that reflect James's dislike for crowds. And that is, I love the people, but do not like to stage me to their eyes. Though it do well, I do not relish well the people's loud applause and Ave's vehement. I am not super convinced by that, that just because King James is supposed to have maybe been slightly agoraphobic, and there are four lines in this play that reflect a person in a position of power also maybe not wanting to hang out in crowds. Like, that doesn't seem, that seems like a reach, if you ask me. 
Yeah. 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 I agree. Yeah. 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 Um, so then we also have the Duke in disguise and that is also supposed to mirror James, but there's like, I mean, there's little evidence for this first thing, right? With the four lines that like, James didn't like crowds. There's like no evidence for this one. And especially because the Duke isn't super consistent in avoiding crowds, right? Like he sort of orchestrates act five with to have like a huge audience. And like James the first is not recorded to have disguised himself ever. Although James the fifth of Scotland, who was James the first of England's father, is known to have, uh, dis- sorry, his grandfather, not his father's grandfather, um, is known to have disguised himself sometimes and gone among his people for like reasons. That's a very Henry V thing to That's do. That's exactly what mm-hmm. I was just thinking. Yeah. How weird. And then the sort of, maybe not the last thing, one of the last things that people are like, this is James, is the situation in the play wherein some pardons come kind of at the last second, but also the pardons don't really come at the last second because the Duke is managing everything behind the scenes anyway. Um, And it is true that one time in the winter of 1603 to 1604, James arranged to have pardons delivered to some prisoners at the moment that they were on the scaffold for their execution because drama but again like that is a reach (laughs) to say you know clearly the duke in measure for measure is based on king james um so there's one more uh one more little tidbit that have people thinking that this is a thing and that is james's writing so james wrote uh, a text in well I don't know when he wrote it, but it was published in England in 1603, and it's called The Basilicon Doron, which is a book of advice about kingship that James wrote sort of specifically for his son, Prince Henry. So it was supposed to have been widely read by people of all kinds. And people are like, oh, Shakespeare totally read this book and then wrote this play and some other plays. Uh, And like, sure, but also there's no evidence that anything in this book wasn't picked up by Shakespeare in other books, in like many, many other books about rule and kingship and being fair. So that's, that's about it. People want to think that the Duke in this play is a representation of King James and uh, it's just, it's kind of not. So there it is. But that's (laughs) interesting. I don't know. I'm interested by that. I have questions. Like, okay. (laughs) Don't you? I d- always, but like, okay, if the Duke is meant to be a James avatar and and a flattering one at that, I think Shakespeare did a pretty poor job at being flattering. Like, for a guy to neglect his duty and like run around and mess with people's lives and cause a bunch of trouble and then come back and fix it, uh, that's not yeah that's not what a good leader does yeah and like he's completely intractable until until isabella begs for angelo's life he's just like angelo almost like well not just like him but i mean they have a lot of similarities so like how is that flattering to james how is that a model for good leadership i mean yeah it's It's not uh... like So I get the impression that this link to James is not super current. This seems like a thing that probably fell out in the 50s or the 60s, um, but took up a couple centuries worth of uh, scholarship. So worth talking about just as sort of part of the lore of this play. A couple other things that I I just want to mention are that this is... Uh, a play with a bed trick, which we kind of glossed over in the in the summary. But this is our second play with a bed trick, right? We did all yeah. already. Yep. Um, and I I don't think there have been any bed tricks in any of the Mm-mm. other contemporary plays that we've done. No. Um, but like, so that's that's cool. This is this is a pretty famous bed trick. Um, yep. and also this is a problem play. 
And I know that we've talked about problem plays before, but probably not since measure, not measure, shrew. And so I, I was driving this home for my students this week. It's gonna show up on their midterm, which if any of them listen to this podcast, which they definitely don't, there's a clue. <laughs> Here's one question that will be on your midterm. But the, you know, the play is a problem because of act five and because of the weird ending to the play, um, which I know that you were going to get into. So maybe bit. that's a nice segue for you. Sure. Thanks. <laughs> um, also, just to piggyback on the problem play label, and we probably did mention this when we talked about Shrew as well, but problem play is a is a label that critics in our century, tw- well, 20th century at the very least, yeah. have put on it. That was not like a genre that Shakespeare wrote for. That's a modern critical intervention. Yeah. I mean, this was um, pretty much since people got married and like basically nobody died. um, The comedy, I think, for their understanding. Yeah. Um, Which like, forgive me for not finding it funny. Oh, I think um, this play's hilarious. I think the shit with the, with, with Pompey and with what's his face? The flush? No. That's oh fuck ben played him yeah. um <laughs> um and froth, i did i did froth, too froth, froth froth i played i was doubled as froth yeah. froth flush okay i knew it started with an f um, an elbow an elbow good. and like that business is i don't hilarious. think mr silver is funny at all um i love the barnadine stuff who's the uh, prisoner Ab who's Horson. like drunk and, and abhorson i mean some of the names you know, are definitely hilarious. Um, Mistress Overdone. Come on now. It's, it's some good naming. Good job, Shakespeare. Some funny shit. But there's also some really, really not funny stuff. I think it's funny. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you sometimes that sometimes it's funny. So, okay. So pr- I'm supposed to talk about like production perspective or and, and Jess is actually because she just taught this is going to help me cover some of the education perspective, too. This play is so relevant right now that it just hurts. And reviewing it in the context of this Kavanaugh nonsense in America, and uh, sorry to our expat or um, non-American listeners, although you've probably heard about some of some of it about it too, because it's been a big stink um, and a big scandal. You know, I mean, this this play is all about the word of a man versus the word and credibility of a woman. Um, a woman who's very clearly in the right. It's it's about literal adherence to the letter of the law without exception versus ec- true equity and restorative justice. But it also features terrible people. Everyone in it, even Isabella, the novice, uh, the novice nun, um, in my opinion, possess an unsettling sort of moral flexibility that allows them to pursue their own ends at the expense of other people. I mean, Isabella, she's she's faced with a tough dilemma, but she still is willing to let her brother die. Everybody in this play has, just like real human beings, have flaws. Okay, I want to I wanna argue with you on okay. this one, on Isabella. So it sounds to me like you're saying that Isabella had a choice. I mean, she eventually found her way around having to sleep with Angelo, but ultimately that's what it came down to. Sleep with Angelo or let your brother die. Yeah. Within the justice system. Like, I'm not saying it's a good law or that he deserved death, but like that's the law and he was arrested and that's the punishment. Like, I don't, she doesn't have a choice. Her choice is flout the law or don't. But the whole, the whole premise of the play is that Angelo is all of a sudden resurrecting old laws that no one has ever bothered to enforce right and he's making it claudio is like the first guy he happened upon because he had like an obviously pregnant non-married partner yeah right and so he got caught he was the unlucky one who got caught yeah and he's making an example of him yeah from a really old fucking law that would be like that would be like if and god forbid this happens but i feel like anything's possible these days but that would be like like somebody resurrecting an old law from like the 1800s that, you know, um, I can't think of any off the top of my head because I'm not a law student. Women are like, allowed to vote. There it yeah. Is. Uh, or I mean, but something with like a cr- crazy criminal I mean, punishment. Yeah. 
I, but I'm not I'm not like defending that. the law. I I think the law is bad, but I I think that Isabella recognizes that Claudio's sort of been caught fair and square breaking this law. I don't know. She's still willing to um do a bed trick, which already is kind of <laughs> has oh. issues of consent. I mean, she's yeah, willing to do that. Right. But like she's willing to go through those ends to not have to sleep with Angelo. Sure. And, dis- but- and, and thereby is deceiving him into thinking that she's complete. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, she's but, still but willing she's to do. Being deceived to think that that's an okay thing. Like the, the friar says, Hey, I'm a friar. So just go along with my plan. Like she's still following the directive of someone who's above her spiritually and ecumenically. She thinks. So you're saying she's innocent in all of this? Yeah. That she's pure? Yeah. I see. I don't think so. I think she has more agency mm, than that. I disagree. This is so interesting. Like, I, I, uh, I mean, sure. Yeah. I, I, well, okay. She has the power to say no to one guy. Absolutely. Unequivocally. She says no to right. Angelo. Uh, and then what? Because the Duke is dressed like a friar, she should be more inclined to believe him. I mean, I know she's a novice nun, but like, and he's not giving her an order. He's he's just saying do this, and he doesn't he doesn't say that it's okay. Yeah, with he does. God. He just no, says, he says do it. it's okay. Act four, scene one. I'm gonna find it. He says God will forgive it. I mean, he doesn't say God will forgive it, but he says it's okay with God. Nor, gentle daughter, fear you not at all. He is your husband on a pre-contract. To bring you thus together, tis no sin, sith that the justice of your title to him doth flourish the deceit. Sure. Okay. Okay. But the other issue I take with Isabella is, sorry. No, no, carry on. I don't, I don't like her. I find her unlikable. Um, is every, every man who imposes on her in the wrong? Definitely. I would defend her against any of them. But I, I don't know. I have a problem also with somebody who puts their religious devotion above their family. I um Okay. You know, maybe she's maybe she's misled by the Duke. Maybe say what you want about that. But I think she has culpability too. Maybe less so than many of the other scoundrels in this play. Okay. So I s- But she has complicity and I see in this. where you're coming from. I don't know that I agree with you, but I do see where you're coming from. As I said to my students, basically every class ever, is I think you might be thinking about the play itself in a uniquely modern context, which is not wrong, but also I think we need to understand the context in which it was written. So while we may think, sure. or you may think, some some modern people may think uh, that Isabella may possess an unsettling moral flexibility, I think the play is written to portray her as maybe the one completely pure character. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, she's definitely the trope. I understand the trope. I don't like it. <laughs> Um, in in the same way in the same way that Helena in All's Well That Ends Well is that trope of the pure woe begotten woman, right? She's the pure virtuous woman. Isabella is meant to be the pure and virtuous trope in this in this problem play. All right. No, I get it. I see it. Okay. I just don't think it's. You're right. I am looking at it with a 21st <laughs> century perspective, and I'm not making any attempt to hide that. That's fine. Um, Carry uh, on. Because I mean, how can we not? Right. I am not an early modern. I'm a thoroughly modern Millie. So <laughs> true story. My middle name. I, I know. I know all about um, it. So it, that is why I have openly struggled with this play and why it is not in my top 10. It is nowhere near my top five. I don't think anybody in this play is actually likable. Um, Lucio is funny. The sort of low class characters are funny, but they're like reprehensible people. They're bad people. Um, and so I struggle. I feel like I'm probably not the only one who struggles, but I think we all struggle on the on the spectrum with these people. This um, true. I hate false staff, so you're you're allowed. Yeah. So, and I love him. Explain that. I I can't. I can't. Um, yes, I can. I played him, so it'll do it. So anyway, there's that to grapple with in a classroom like Jess has, um, or in a production. What's cool about this play is that it it features characters from basically every social strata 
um, from the bottom, literally the bottom, um, Barnabas in the prison, you know, Barnadine, Barnadine, sorry, <laughs> Barnabas, I was close, Barnadine, literally rolling around his own shit in a prison cell all the way up to a duke. So we've got the entire social mix in between and they are all staged for you in a cesspool of corruption, a.k.a. Vienna. No offense, Viennese folks. I've been to your city. It's beautiful. That said, you've got lots of fun tropes to play with, like the virtuous woman trope and the bod trope and the duke trope and plenty of others, uh, which is a fun challenge for actors. It's a challenge to costume them all. Um, and I think a fun, a fun one to portray all those different folks with with clarity. I had the pleasure of listening to John Harrell, a professional actor who's been with um, the American Shakespeare Center for off and on for like 30 years. Talk about acting and some of the stuff that he's learned. Um, I heard him drop some knowledge on some students. And uh, because I do struggle with this play, I'm going to completely steal what he said. Thank you, John. He said, stage problems, not solutions. And this whole play is problematic. It's a huge problem. And, uh, and maybe that's okay. Maybe... We need to sit and stew in this problem for a while and wrestle with how it makes us feel, which is kind of a Brechtian idea when you think about it. And I'm all about that. So that's cool. And also one last point about Isabella, which has nothing to do with how I personally feel about her. And it's a question that every production needs to answer. How do we handle the fact that she doesn't speak at the end of the play? She stops talking at some point, and it's pretty early on, actually, after she's kind of said her piece and, and uh, pleaded for mercy for Angelo. And kind of after that, she shuts up and she doesn't answer either one of the Duke's proposals. And, and so what possibilities does that open up for your production? And usually I say there's no right or wrong answer, but I'm going to break that rule. <laughs> and no, a happy ending with the Duke is not the fucking right answer. And if you do that, you're wrong. Go away. So my students had a real interesting time with Act 5. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. So we were talking about it in class on Thursday. And half of them were like, I can't believe she just marries the Duke. And half of them were like, uh, she does what now? <laughs> And so it was really fun sort of pointing out to both of them, like, okay, well, here's the proposal, but also she says nothing. And this is a choice that we have to deal with. I think it's funny, too, that some some people, and I did this for a while, mm -hmm. actually, you, you kind of extrapolate her answer. Mm -hmm. Just because he asked the question, you kind of assume that she's going to go along with it. Yeah. Um, you don't have to assume that, ladies. Yeah. The, the <laughs> you don't have to. The first time that I read this play back in 2013, we, we had a small reading group. We were doing it aloud and I was reading Isabella. And then we, we got to the end and we stopped and I was like, hold the fuck on. What? She doesn't get what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I always sort of carry that with me every time I get to act five of this play. Yeah. I love this play. I, my favorite story, I'm going to, segue into this because it's actually relevant so it's not actually bird walking because it's relevant okay so the last time i saw this play in production was uh i forget what year but it was at the oregon shakespeare festival and it was that year that um there was something wrong with one of the beams in their big indoor space and so they had to move it to like an outdoor temporary tent type of space most uncomfortable seats i've ever sat in that is a that is bird walking. But anyway, I just need to throw that out there. Um, but in that production, Stephanie Beatrice, who you know from Brooklyn Nine Nine as Rosa, she played Isabella. First of all, she was bomb. Secondly, my favorite moment from a really upsetting production. And again, this play just upsets me. So it really has it doesn't reflect much on the production itself. But the thing I loved was they had it set, the final scene set kind of like there was a podium right center stage and the Duke and everybody was kind of jostling to be in front of, it was almost like a press conference and they were kind of jostling to get in front of the microphone. And uh, the Duke delivers his second proposal to Isabella and then she takes a moment and she goes up to the podium and she <gasps> draws in a breath like she's about to say words and then boom, the lights went out. It was amazing. 
amazing, amazing, amazing. She had this look on her face too. And thank you, Stephanie Beatrice. She had this look on her face like she was about to tell everyone to go to hell. It was it was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating and thrilling um, to just watch her go, ah, boom. Yeah. It's great. Um, I'm with you The there might, well, I guess you said you're not, that there's no right answer to this. Um, I think there is no, no right answer to this, but I do think that the wrong answer is not making a choice with that moment. Um, mm-hmm whatever you do in a production where whichever way you go you have to make a choice and leaving it super ambiguous is not a good one i i don't know i feel like that's what they did with the osf one though like i can't guarantee that she would have told everyone to go to hell it it seemed like i mean she was gonna say words we just didn't get to hear them um i do think the very wrongest answer (laughs) personally is for her to go okay and toss away her vows and marry the duke because she spent the entire fucking play trying to preserve her vows and not, and also save her brother. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't, you can't do it both. You can't do both. Also, the Duke is icky. Like, don't go there. Yeah, he's not Gross. great. All he's right. the worst. Well, okay, sorry. No, you're rant. fine. I'm done. We're, fine. We're um, maybe not going to agree yeah. on this play. And I think that's productive and good. I, I think it's more interesting yep. when we don't agree. Yeah, no, you're right. This, this play is a problem and I have feelings about it and they... Mm-hmm make me that's my feeling about this play cool you want to play a game sure game time cool we are gonna play line roulette because jess likes this play she's got things to say about it probably so (laughs) well she will whether you know words will come out of her mouth about this play at some point um so in line roulette we're gonna roll some dice and those dice will give us the number of an act and a scene and a line uh what text are you working with today jess i'm working with the folger text folger right on um so from from that jess is going to find that line that she rolled with her dice and then explain how the line encapsulates the entirety of the play good luck with that this is a problem play that's either really easy or really hard yep so it's four three line twelve Oh, this is such a shitty line. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to pull up my timer. Oh, hang on. All right. Okay. So it's a giant fucking piece of prose. And it's Pompey. Okay. Yay, Pompey. Uh, Oh, my God. I'm so angry. I don't want to do this. Yeah, you know what? Here's This isn't a game. But here's a thing that I do want to share. I'm going to call, this is what we're calling the game this week, is Jess's students say smart things. Right on. I like this game. Yeah. Um, so in my, in my Britlet class, they are responsible for posting discussion board posts uh, every week. And this week, I had a particularly fire one in relation to this play. And I have asked my student for permission to share this. I did not imagine I was going to share it on the podcast, but I'm going to do it. It's what I'm going to do. This is this is my student, Laura. Um, hey, Laura. She's great. So she has titled her discussion board post, Rape in Exchange for a Brother's Life, colon, The Ballad of a Penis. <laughs> I like her. Yeah, I like her too. <laughs> and here's here's what she has to say about Acts 1 through 3, but particularly 2-4. Uh-huh. <laughs> Amazing. Good lord, this play is good. I thought it was pretty good until I got to Act 2, Scene 4. It was in that moment the bomb was dropped. When Angelo first said he loved Isabel, I was taken aback. First of all, slow your roll, a.k.a. your penis. <laughs> Let's break this down. Angelo meets Isabel. She's desperately trying to save her brother, and he immediately, after maybe five to ten minutes of talking with her, says he loves her. Whoa. Calm down. Admirational love can be from afar and grow into romantic love after some time. This isn't abnormal or unhealthy. It is often human nature to see someone so beautiful and intelligent stand before you that you become so shook you can't contain your feelings. However, admiration this extreme is not love but infatuation. This can become very dangerous, very fast. From the first moment he saw her to the moment he mentioned rape was probably about 24 hours. That is not that long, and to jump to saying that she must have sex with him to save her brother's life is absolutely insane. I genuinely cannot even comprehend that kind of logic. 
This man's logic is so immensely illogical that he should never be given any position of power, period. If anyone should be tried, it's Angelo, for he is longing, not just wanting, but, but romanticizing, to commit exchange rape. I am glad that Shakespeare portrayed Isabel as a strong and brave woman who stood up for herself. I can't say the scene would have affected me positively if it went the other direction. All right, Laura. Yeah. I read Laura that. Laura is wise. And I was like, fire! I mean, all of the, the Blackboard responses this week were pretty on point uh, in ways that they maybe aren't all the time. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, this play is relevant ass uh, and they had thoughts and feelings. And also, you know, they actually Word. read the play, which is, they don't always yeah. do that thing. So slow your roll, Angelo. Yeah. Like slow it. your roll, aka your penis. I was <laughs> like, I want to tweet that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Good so... job, Jess's students. You said smart things. Yeah. Cool and groovy. We're moving on to some Shakespeare bubble gossip. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Jess won an award. Our very own Jess Hamlet won an award for being the awesomest of the awesomes. Can you <laughs> describe what is this award for? We here at the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show, a.k.a. me, are very <laughs> proud of you. <laughs> Thanks, baby. So I won the English Department Award for Outstanding Research by a Doctoral Student. Um, Yay! I don't know how many people I was up against. Um, I have no idea who else applied, but there are 30 PhD students in the department. So good for you. Yeah. Oh, there's that. It was a really strong showing by my program of the six awards they hand out. Three of them went to people in my program. So right on. Awesome. Yeah. So it's, it's, I am doing some cool research, I guess <laughs> is what this means. Um, is this your new thesis research? Is this anything to do with the ideas you were talking about yeah, a few episodes yeah, ago? Yeah. Like the new ideas percolating yeah. that have inspired you to write? Yeah. So I had applied for this um, hey. award last year and didn't get it. Um, and when they rejected me, they were like, your application was super impressive. You know, it just, it went to someone who is a little bit farther along in the PhD process, but we'd love to see you apply again. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> you ask and you're gonna get um so what I did this year was I I I took my first paragraph from last year's application I was like you know when I applied for this last year here is basically the thesis statement of that application and then I went all right so my research has gone in a different direction in the last 12 months um here are some things that I'm thinking about and grappling with so, all right, so let me, maybe I'll read this to you. Okay, so as an example of where these ideas are headed, my current position on Shakespeare identity in the Indian Mutiny concerns the idea of English authors using Shakespeare in the late 1850s to give their English reading audiences a way of mediating both what India was like as a country and what Indians were like as a people. At the time of the 1857 mutiny, English readers were eager for texts about their empire, and both the literary magazines and the novels of the era show how writers were using Shakespeare to appeal to an educated English readership and to repackage, sanitize, and shape Indian cultural and religious practices for English consumption and titillation. As a case study, I use Philip Meadows Taylor's 1839 novel Confessions of a Thug and its Shakespearean epigraphs to establish a pre-mutiny practice of using Shakespeare to write about India and Indians for an English audience and use it as a foundation for mutiny-era journalists invoking Shakespeare two, two decades later. London's periodicals constantly pulled Shakespeare into their articles for the benefit of their audiences and, like Taylor's novel, complicated narratives of the events with their selection of plays with which to package them. And then moving forward, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And then... I talked about conferences and publications and some things other than that. And then I was like, uh, also, P.S., I've got a podcast. Hey, all right. Here's a little bit about it. Uh, and by a little bit about it, I was just like, um, here's an entire page about how fucking great our podcast is. So maybe possibly in a tiny little way, this podcast helped you win the award? Absolutely. I mean, they didn't mention it yeah. in the congratulations letter, but they did uh, mention my robust 
research profile. So this is part of it. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, I'm so proud. Um, also, super cool that like last year, this time last year, you were talking about your epigraphs paper. Mm-hmm. I remember this clearly. Mm-hmm. It was like around this time last year. It was in one of our first episodes. Yeah. And you were like, I'm writing this thing about epigraphs. It's kind of cool. And you like walk us through it. Yeah. And now it's maybe part of your. Oh, it's it's a, an entire chapter in my it's, dissertation. It. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, the dissertation I just, that I have neither I written nor planned. But yeah, it's that's there's a chapter in that. So amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Like um, the evolution of writing. We're, we're, list, we're, we're witnessing it as it happens. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, you're incredible i just want you to know thanks and and we're all very proud of you i'm speaking for all the listeners (laughs) all sorry guys i won't do that very often yes all of you um (laughs) special shout out to itunes reviewer p barroyles la paul barrois sure yeah he and i did a show together last year oh well he wrote us a great review that i quoted in his application so shout out to you paul well, another point of gossip, and I sort of alluded to this already, is um, happy anniversary to us. Woo! Woohoo! Um, I think October 15th was when we released our very first, like, our About Us episode, but mm-hmm. October 23rd marks the one-year anniversary of the release of our first three 101 episodes. We're a year old. Woo, 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 woo. That's madness. I can't believe I'm doing this for a year. It is madness. Happy anniversary to us. All right, so just opened this past week is the Donmar Warehouse production of uh, Measure for Measure starring Haley Atwell in London. And it is getting mixed reviews. I've, I've read a mixed? mixed. I have read a very uh, critical review, and I have also read a glowing review. So I believe that qualifies as mixed reviews. But as I understand it, uh, so I just want to describe the production. And if you are interested, you can go find those reviews and production stills and decide for yourself. Or maybe if you live near there, you can go see it, in which case I want to hear all about it because I, I, I have questions and I'm curious. So this production has been in the works for a while and it was billed as um, halfway through the character, the actor playing Isabella and the actor playing Angela were going to switch. They were going to switch roles. So the female bodied actor would then play Angelo for the last half of the play. And the male bodied actor would play Isabella for the last half of the play. Um, and people were like, are you fucking shitting me? That is the worst thing ever because then the female bodied actor gets attacked and also punished for it why would you do this? It turns out that that is not actually what the production is. So just to get that out of the way, um, as I understand it, here's what they're doing is they do the entire play in Elizabethan ish costumes Mm -hmm. in 80 minutes, which is so fucking fast and requires a lot of cuts Um, I don't know what they cut other than most of the subplot, and that's where most of the comedy lies. So that's interesting. And then they go to intermission, and they come back, and in the last, I don't, I guess, 80 minutes again, they do the entire play again with Haley Atwell playing the Angelo analog, and the male actor whose name is Jack something playing the Isabella analog. And so they're gender swapped. I'm not sure if they have done things with the names it might still be isabella and angelo um so we don't know if they regendered or cross-gendered no they regendered okay yeah but i i'm not sure if they swapped names along with genders like i think Haley atwell okay. may still be playing isabella but isabella is now the person in power oh i see yeah okay. um and they, so they do it again but in modern dress in the second half hmm yeah, so the, the... And gender swapped. Yeah. And, wow, okay. Yeah. And cut. Huh. Really, really heavily cut. So I, the critical review that I read is particularly harsh about this this second half because, and this is my issue with when you try to regender Faustus, it just, it does, it does no favors to women. It, it makes women look bad. 
because all of a sudden when you have a woman in position of power who tries to get a male subordinate to sleep with her i mean it doesn't make men look good the other way around but uh, you know women women are already struggling to have any kind of measure of equity in any world mm. um and and to gender swap and put the woman in the the villain character yeah how does that help what is this production trying to say i guess that's my question too yeah. like is the point to to be like men get harassed too i don't which is true yeah right which is also not to discount um the the pain and suffering that men go through when that happens to them just because it happens less doesn't make it any less severe yeah but regendering like that also f almost feels like a nod to the like not all men type of thing it's like well yeah no you, that's true if anyone's seen it mm -hmm. If if any if we have any listeners who have seen that production, oh my goodness, please, 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 please get in touch with us. Yeah. Okay, so we've got some dick bracket stuff to talk about. <laughs> this week we're just gonna talk about some results, right? We yep. um we're taking a tiny bit of hiatus because in our Faustus episode we're gonna reveal the final matchups of round one and then we can move on to round two, but because we don't have them all yet. We're not we're not trying to match anybody up yet ahead of time. So we've just got some results. Take it away, Jess. Last week, we asked you to vote on who's a bigger dick between Chiron and Demetrius from Titus and Livia from Women for Women, Women for Women, and then Margaret of Anjou versus Alice from Arden of Faversham. So we counted all the votes and in like the weirdest landslide ever, or maybe not the weirdest, but the most unexpected landslide ever, Alice uh, from Faversham is advancing over Margaret of Anjou. That was surprising. Mm -hmm. And then less surprising, but also wrong, uh, is that you guys picked Chiron and Demetrius over Livia. And I get why, yeah. because Livia doesn't rape anyone, but she's way more insidious than Chiron and Demetrius, who are dummies. Yeah, she also has a bigger body count behind her. Yeah. I want to fight this um, one. I want to fight this one. I'm not at all surprised people defended Margaret of Anjou because that's really what it was. People were like, no, no, no. Margaret's awesome. You mispronounced awesome when you said <laughs> dick. Um, and as a fellow Lancastrian listeners, I agree. I love me some Margaret. Um, and I don't even know this bitch, Alice, but I know she has to be a bigger dick than Margaret because I love Margaret. So I mean, I get that one. Margaret kills children. <laughs> yeah alice kills her husband you're right it is a weird landslide yeah how, how what people are willing to overlook because they just like margaret yeah <laughs> yep that's really what this boils down to so listeners we love you but we're also overruling you um livia is going to move forward over chiron and demetrius and we have our reasons and we've outlined some of them i mean we're not excusing yeah. chiron and demetrius and what they do no. like they do some fucked yeah, up dicks. shit they rape and they murder and they mutilate and it's not good none of it is good but what livia does is so much more nefarious and insidious and icky i think um mm -hmm. and also she's she's gonna be a better matchup against who she'll get matched up against going forward so yeah, um that's true you'll thank us later yeah you will because these guys wouldn't stand a chance against the person that she would that Livia is going to have to take on. Yep. So, so to be the biggest dick. Overruled. We love you, but overruled. You know, I let yep. I let Proteus win over Portia. I didn't fight that one, and I didn't fight it when Leontes lost to whoever he lost to Barabbas. Yeah, this one though, yeah. we're we're united on this one, you yeah. guys. I hate those fuckers, Chiron and Demetrius, but Livia is like premeditated first level kind of shit yeah i'd like she's to see on a her whole different level than those guys take on like a like a richard three or a tamara and i'd like to see what happens there well we'll have to see who comes through i know i know i know on richard and tamara first I know. that's one hell of a matchup too can't wait to see what people say about that one that's gonna be tough right, right. i think I agree. So okay. Anyway, this it? week, like I said, we're not we're not setting up any match any more matchups, but we are giving yeah. you those 
those results. So thank you so much for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast and come away more informed than when you started. Check back in with us next week for Dr. Faustus 101, which um, will air close to Halloween. Yeah. Twill. Spooky. Yes. Yeah. I think it's coming out on the 29th. Yeah, so, sounds yeah. right. All right. Yeah. Whamble it out. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or follow us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or on Twitter at hurlyburlyshakes. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shue. You can learn more about him at jonathanshue.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. What's this? What's this? Is this her fault or mine? What's this? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I asked them, you know, if you could live in any historical time period, what would you pick? And a bunch of them were like, I want to live in the 90s. And I was like, yo. Fuck all the way off, young people.